Welcome to the PreparedX podcast, your complete source for crisis, emergency, business continuity and security preparedness interviews, news, and much more. Now, your host, he creates chaos for a living, Rob Burton. Hello and welcome to episode 116 of the PreparedX podcast. I'm your host, Rob Burton. And just before we get started, I wanted to let you know that this episode is brought to you by the International Crisis Management Conference, the Center of Excellence for Crisis Management Professionals. And did you know, annual membership is just $99 and you get access to a ton of stuff, uh, presentations, webinars, discounts on certified courses and of course, discounts on our annual conference, which is coming up in June, plus a lot more. Go to crisisconferences.com for more details. Okay, on to today's episode. It's a great pleasure that I'm joined here by Steve Kerr. I hope I pronounced that correctly, Steve, yeah. uh, who's the founder and CEO of Kerr Group LLC. Uh, welcome. Hi there. Hi, Rob. Uh, just before we get started into uh, the interview today, Steve, could you let the viewers know a little bit more about your career so far? I'd be happy to. I have uh, a lot to tell. I, I've been doing this uh, since the 80s. I had my first emergency management job uh, going back that far. I was uh, with the New York City Emergency Medical Service, EMS, which was a separate agency at the time. And I was appointed as an operations officer with Special Operations Division, which means I was a citywide, essentially citywide crisis manager. My job was to respond, represent the chief of the agency at major emergencies and assume command or serve in a safety capacity. Um, I had done that for a number of years, became the commander of the unit, uh, rose to the rank of deputy chief, uh, was in Manhattan on... uh, in, in 1993, as uh, as deputy chief, and uh, I pick out 1993 because of the first World Trade Center attack, and I served in a uh, in an incident command capacity there as a member of the uh, the incident command team, coordinating mutual aid with the EMS agencies coming in from around the tri-state area as far out as Pennsylvania. Fast forward to 1996, uh, the mayor of New York creates the Office of Emergency Management, and I'm asked to join the the team uh, because of the most likely the work I've been doing in the in the fire department. Uh, what, what I didn't say was around the same time, New York City EMS and the New York City Fire Department merged and uh, at, the, at the mayor's direction. And I was uh, I retained my rank as deputy chief, did that for a bit. And I went over to emergency management and I was one of the first executive team members. Uh, that was a tremendous growth opportunity as well as doing some incredible stuff. Uh, for the city and the people of New York and having managed a few major disasters, including a number of presidentially declared disasters, the growth opportunity in 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 the subject matter areas that I was able to learn from was, was incredible. Hit the private sector after that around 9-11. I was working for uh, uh, Kroll as a, as a consultant. And uh, earlier that year, we were doing, uh, my team and I were doing uh, emergency management planning for the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey facilities around the tri-state area, seaports, airports, Kennedy, LaGuardia, Newark, to uh, as iconic facilities cross uh, interstate tunnels and bridges, such as the Lincoln, the Holland, George Washington Bridge, and on 9-11, of course, uh, we were there to support 
the Port Authority. And for the next 10 months, my team and I were fortunate enough to have played a support role to the Port Authority in their incident command and uh, operation and emergency management organization. Uh, did state emergency management for a bit, state director of emergency management for a short while, uh, and then uh, was recruited to uh, out in Colorado. I went on a complete departure from what I was doing, took a job in Colorado as head of emergency management, enterprise continuity in the later years, physical security for a uh, large uh, water, uh, gas, electric, and wastewater utility. When that came, when that, that concluded, I was able to retire out of there in 2021. We had some property in Florida, came here, dropped a shingle, Kerr Group lives, and <laughs> trying to build uh, you know, business in the South Florida market and beyond. Here you are. That's great. That's well wonderful. Pre appreciate the background there, and uh, I, I know we we connect occasionally on the, on LinkedIn, and so you uh, you know post some insightful stuff. So glad to have you uh, join the podcast. My pleasure. My pleasure. Okay, I, of course, a lot of our listeners are from the business community, so I'd like to start off as it relates to uh, community resilience. But before before we dive into that, uh, what is what does it mean, and what you know, what what kind of uh, um, what kind of things should businesses be looking at in terms of developing a, a strong emergency preparedness program? You know, what what does that look like, Steve? I think I think businesses first need to recognize that they need to have it now in, i mean we we could say rob and i think you'll agree to this everybody needs some sort of a program but what is a business i, I mean i i'm a business i'm a i'm a sole proprietor with a large team of of uh, subject matter experts that that come to support me as i do them in a time of crisis but so let's take a mid-size organization that has um, some sort of exposure. Well, we don't know what that exposure is. Do they know what that exposure is? Is it is it natural hazard exposure? Is there an insider threat exposure? So we, the, the first thing organizations need to do is want to acknowledge that they need to have a program and look at their risk. And yeah, and, and that means we sit around and we, we lead a discussion through, this is not numbers, this is not quantitative quality. This yeah. is just a hardcore discussion what can cause your business to be disrupted? What can harm your workforce? And you, you'd be surprised at what comes out about potential threats in the workforce or threats, ex external threats. And well, you know, we, we had that water main break a couple of years ago and we were out of business for a few days, that kind of thing. Right, yeah, and, yeah. Then, and then there's, you know, they know the big visible threats. If you're in South Florida, well, you know, hurricanes yeah, yeah, are threats. Yeah. And I want to say something about that. I think I think that's also a bit of a challenge because Floridians are like, oh, it's just another hurricane. Right. But, but I, you know, my, my message is, well, we need to do a little more than just uh, right. uh, it's just a hurricane. We could exercise your program. We can look at some of the vulnerabilities of your properties, that, that kind of thing. Yeah, business continuity beyond that, right? So if the facility is not available, so you know what's the plan then? So great. Yeah, I, I was talking with a VP from a bank recently. It doesn't matter, you know, which one, and and I I had a hard time getting him to understand that. The the the, the message was we we have hurricane season every year, and we always muddle our way through it. And right. uh, when, when I start to talk about the cascading the cascading impacts of of an event. Uh, hurricane, active shooter, whatever it might yep. be, it doesn't have to be the immediate effects. Um, 
kind of zoned out on me. So we, we as emergency managers, crisis managers, business continuity leaders, resilience leaders, there's so many terms now yep. about our business. That's another discussion. Yeah. We have a, we have an obligation, I think, to help those that don't understand uh, what their risk is and how to plan plan. And that's not only a business proposition. That's just because we're professionals. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. Great, great stuff. So w- within this uh, program, then, if, if you were to set a program up, let's let's call it that, that medium-sized enterprise that you were talking about there um, from scratch, you know, wh- where would you prioritize your efforts? It sounds like that assessment piece is the foundation. But then, you know, beyond that, you know, of course, you know, we'd, we'd love to be able to come in and, and some of our customers say we, we want the first piece, right? So what is that in terms of where they're currently at? So what would you look at if you were coming in from scratch and you need to get them up and running? You had, you had the first kind of three pieces to the program. What would they be? So for, we already spoke about sort of a situational awareness. There's a couple of ways to look at that. So it's understanding their situation, which is part of the risk assessment. So threat and risk assessment would be the first piece. The second piece is to um, – you know, I'm going to go with an exercise because I'm starting to, I'm starting to try engage organizations in exercises before planning, which is not the linear process that is typical for our traditional, business. But, right, but yeah. I, I, it's not traditional. But I believe getting adults, adult learning, around the table once we understand their risk to the table. Walking them through some scenarios based on the risks that we've determined will help us understand their culture, their organization, what leadership structures they do have. And that's a segue into item three, which is the development of the crisis management plan, business continuity, annexes to the plan, et cetera. Sure. Yeah, I love that approach, Stephen. We're seeing the same now. We're seeing a little bit of a shift as well. No matter what framework you've got in place, let's dive in quickly as a as a unit. Let's bring those heads to the table and let's figure out where that framework goes, right? Because you know, if you build a framework, then you test it afterwards. It typically has some changes anyway. Um, so so I love that uh, reversed approach. And I'm seeing you know, we've been doing it for a while. So, uh, but not with everyone, of course. Not everyone wants to follow that model, but um, we certainly encourage that. Uh, you know based on where they're at. You gotta be creative, Rob. Yep. And I appreciate you saying that you have a savvy emergency manager, a savvy exercise facilitator can lead a discussion through helping an organization understand their risk, what they currently have by way of crisis management capability and what they don't have. These, And then the, these leaders, they should be business leaders, should walk out of the room with an aha moment saying, "Sure." But we better get that plan together and then test it again by doing another exercise, maybe a little more intense, sure. uh, to see how well we do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, if if uh, your sex, if your exercises don't come away with you know one or more, more or you know everyone in that group having one of those moments or more, or more than one of those moments, then you know the, the planning of the exercise may not have gone as well as uh, as it should have. So this is great. Okay, moving on. Um, why are communities better prepared to face disasters when those businesses within those communities are resilient? Self reliance. Uh, I have. Well, so you know we. Tongue in cheek, uh, FEMA created you know this thing or well, the Waffle House Index uh, a few years ago. Rob, you're familiar yep. with that, I'm sure. Uh, and I, I think there's something there. Right. And I have in in the communities I've worked in taken that the next step and said. 
the big box stores need to be resilient. The large supermarkets, the Walmarts, the, the oh. Targets, the, the Costco's, because if the big box stores are functioning and the community is self-reliant, it's true resilience. Yep. Now, of course, if the stores are impacted, if they're flooded, they're hit by tornadoes, something to that effect, fire. We saw the Walmart, I believe it's in Indiana, Walmart warehouse burned down so so we have we have those things but true resilience exists uh in a community when it can be self-sustaining so we focus on the ability for the community to self-feed to self-supply itself with materials for the emergency because there's going to be a component of the community that is going to need emergency management support and activation of the appropriate uh, elements in an emergency operations center to provide feeding and housing, you know, ESF-6, sure. ESF-8, et cetera. Yeah, I think it's all about the people, right? So, you know, and again, you know, if you've got people, you know, going back to their jobs, you know, they feel comfortable, they're still providing for, for their families. And of course, you know, jobs, you know, often, you know, in most communities anyway, are, are through business. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's critical. Um, so my, my approach has always been three things during an emergency. Life safety, human mass care, then critical infrastructure. Yep. Save wow. lives, make sure people are safe. Then take care of their human needs, feed them, house them, make sure that they're getting information. Then we'll take care of the infrastructure later. Yep. Yep. Great. Um, working with first responders um, in terms of you know, community preparedness, um, you know, t- talk to me a little about that. What are your thoughts on that in terms of, you know, businesses, you know, partnering and having those critical stakeholders alongside, especially where you have maybe a business that's larger than other businesses in the community that may have, you know, some more exposure. So coming out of the first responder community and having been, well, in emergency management now longer than I was in the first responder community, I I can speak to that with some clarity. Um, First of all, I I have been known to say, and people roll their eyes when they hear this, but you'll get it, the worst place to exchange business cards is at a command post or in an emergency operations center. So it is critical that the first response agencies know which critical infrastructure including such as the ones we spoke about, the box stores and, and the supermarkets are, are in their response zones so they can tend to them in, in time of crisis. Yep. So, you know, during a flood event or an electric storm event or a severe weather event, the worst time for the for the fire uh, department to enter a substation is when it's on fire and they've, and they've never been there. So it's critical right. that, and I, I did, I, I spent some time with an electric utility as we discussed, and we did have a program where the fire department would tour uh, the, the, the substations and they, and they would understand the difference between a transmission sub and a, and a distribution sub and, and, and the requirements for fighting a fire and, and mostly safety. You can't yep. just, you, you can't just go into a substation and touch things. Right, right, yeah, yeah. We, you, yeah. you know, the, because we, these copper theft is a big problem yeah. in the electric industry right now. And and tragically, people stealing copper sometimes end up uh, elect, with electrocution right. injuries. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah. yeah, you can say that one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, I, I had a recent story uh, from uh, Pete Gaynor. Um, of course, you're familiar mm-hmm. with Pete. And sure. he, was, he was telling me a similar story uh, when he was uh, at uh, Providence Emergency Management Organization. And he said, uh, you know, he told me a similar story of uh, someone went in there by themselves. And I guess it was a, a work project and uh, they went in to find him and there was only a hat left. 
you know, the, the steel, yeah, uh, the, yeah. the, you know, the safety so, hat. So, so real quick, a, a quick war story. We had a, uh, what, what was reported as a pipe bomb in a, in, in a substation. And, uh, this became a thing, right? So we have a pipe bomb and an electric substation. Substation supported uh, electric distribution for a large part of the city I worked in. And uh, nobody would enter the substation without an appropriate uh, technician from the substation group, which was appropriate. So the bomb squad, the regional bomb squad, uh, sheriff and, and local PD didn't enter until the appropriate expertise got there. It turned out to be a hoax, but it was it was ATF said this thing was designed to look like a pipe bomb. It was yeah. a hoax, no, but everybody played it cool. Nobody went in. It's they stood by, isolated the area, established yeah. safeties on that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, great. Um, I, I'd like to move on because I, I know it's been in the media quite a bit recently, and of, of course, um, you know, uh, when, when a train goes over and it becomes an issue for a community, of course, it becomes you know front and center in the news. Certainly here, um, you know, in in, uh, in in the U.S. And I know, of course, you know, there was another one recently, shortly afterwards. Um, you know, the East Palestine obviously happened in Ohio, and then there was another one in Greece. Uh, I believe uh, you know several, uh, probably fifty or sixty, I think deaths in Greece recently with the train um, accident there. And then there was another one, of course, in Ohio shortly after the East Palestine one. Uh, I know you've been kind of keeping one eye on that as a professional fr from the, um, you know, from the industry. So what are the, what are a couple of lessons that you're seeing coming out of this in terms of, uh, you know, what, what other communities as well as obviously, you know, those in, in responsible for response uh, should be learning from this. So first thing I'd like to say is I think we have a little bit of, um, let me think of something, information bias. Yep. There are 1,500 train derailments every year. As a, as a member of the fire department in New York, EMS, emergency management, I responded to any number of subway accidents, yep. including derailments. One was a major collision, which, which is a, a whole other podcast uh, that involved mass casualty uh, yep. operations. But I think from my point of view, I think what we had was a failure in crisis communications. I want to be cautious to criticize crisis management at the incident command level, because I have every reason to believe that the local fire department uh, and uh, police department did did yeoman's work in trying to, this is a small city, in oh. trying to establish an incident command system. But when you have small cities, they can be overwhelmed by the three-letter three agencies that, yeah. that come in yeah. and take advice and and, yeah. and give guidance. I've, I've been in situations like that where you're getting so much different guidance and so much information, it's hard to say what's right. But from a crisis communications perspective, there was a big vacuum for weeks. Yeah. So this this incident happened on February 3rd. Uh, it's it's now uh, February, uh, rather March so 16th. Yeah. And we are we're still getting information. But it wasn't until about two weeks ago, a month after it, we started really getting information flow. So. I struggle as a 911 responder, 911 responder, 22 years after 911, where the biggest thing was communication failures, why we're still seeing communication failures. Yep. And that, that's not the incident commander. 
No. At that point, at that point, you have a you should have a unified command at, at three levels of government, an EPA on scene coordinator. Right? We have plans for this. People were right. saying FEMA wasn't there. FEMA wasn't there, sure, but EPA has ESF ten responsibilities under the National Response Plan right. to have an on scene coordinator. So um, I think we could have done a better job of crisis communications and assuaged some of the bad information that we're getting here from a long term. Crisis management perspective, um, it would be it would be interesting to see the after action report, see what structures were put in place. Sure, and yeah. I, I'd be looking for that as well. Yeah, yeah, no, that's good. Yeah, we we often when we run our you know, tabletops and you know we we leave those you know we call them lessons to be learned, right? So you know, okay, you've identified yeah. them. They're right. They're, they're the lessons identified, but really, once you make your changes, you restructure your plan, you add in whatever whatever it is, add capabilities, and then you revalidate that actually those changes actually work. Yeah. So so we, we've been using that term quite successfully, and and that remediation plan obviously is a big big part. Of, well, you know the biggest spot really of the whole process right you know you know the, the 9-11 commission report um can speak to just about every disaster before there and after yep. and the failures that exist with regard to uh, command control and communication yep yeah yeah a great great report as well i uh, remember reading that uh, when it came out um so uh, let, let's move on. What would uh, your number one piece of advice be for anyone looking in to get get into our industry, emergency, you know, crisis preparedness field? So that could be somebody switching from, you know, another industry. It could be someone in our age who's going to come into the industry. It could be a young person, of course, wanting to get into it from from an educational standpoint. What would that piece of advice be? Well, so there are degree programs now. I myself have two degrees uh, in emergency management and homeland security, respectively. Um, but I did this as an adult learner, and I had already had years of experience as an incident commander, EOC director, emergency manager. So I would encourage young people to go through the programs, but the programs are going to teach you the theory. To the extent that you can find an active shop, whether it's in a business, a petrochemical facility or a large uh, manufacturing organization or a big city emergency management agency, I would urge I would urge them to try to find internships or get into entry level jobs and an active shop so they could learn that lean in, lean forward approach. Because right. we can sit here and talk about resilience until we're blue in the face. Right. Resilience includes at, at, at its overhead a a crisis management capability. Sure. Nobody, nobody is going to say Norfolk Southern didn't have a good resilience program. Have you heard that yet? Right. <laughs> right you're yeah. hearing. You're yeah. hearing. Where's the CEO? Where's Where's the the DOT secretary? Where's FEMA? You're hearing crisis management. Right. Not, so, so you need to learn that lean end mentality. You have to stand watch or be part of uh, uh, an EOC activation and you have to be sleep deprived and over caffeinated and right. you got to be and you got to have some some uh, fatigued emergency management director or, or mayor climbing all up in your stuff right. and i say that with great passion because yep. that is that is i have seen people grow because of that myself included i work for some very powerful uh, very aggressive emergency managers and, and elected officials, and I, I, I think about those days with great passion and uh, and as growth opportunities. 
I, that's my answer, and that's going to be hard because pe- people are struggling to find jobs in our business, which I I don't truly understand. There's a lot of jobs out there, but sure, yeah, you know, but it's it, it's it's tough. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's great advice. I remember, you know, joining the British Army at 16 years old, and of course, you know, you know, the theory was there as well, but you know, there was it was much more practical than there was theory, right? So we were heavy on the running around the fields and doing that piece, uh, and then you know, later on, of course, when I became a young leader um, in the operational room in that environment, uh, yeah. you know, doing that piece as well from a ver- very young age. So, uh, and of course, you know, your leadership skills go through the roof as well when you get involved in, in those types of environments um okay so this is my most exciting part of the interview and we're we're starting to wrap up because i know we've been we've been talking about this uh today um we're going to touch on exercises because that's you know what our passion here at prepare of course um can you tell three short stories you know good bad and ugly or you know whatever way around you want to say you know or you want to talk about them we'd we'd love to hear that um so it could be two good ones one bad or however you want to present them we'd love to hear it Okay, I have I have a bad and ugly all wrapped into one, but let me talk about a couple good ones. Okay, great. Uh, so the first one is going to be um, in the weeks leading up to the 9-11 terror attacks, I was very fortunate to be part of a team that was supporting uh, the Port Authority, as I mentioned, and the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey uh, was part of a series of exercises called Gateway. And the Gateway exercise series included... Um, uh, so in midsummer, it was late July, I believe we did an internal tabletop exercise with, with the leadership of the Port Authority. And in mid August, I believe it was, or maybe even late August, close, close to 9-11, we had done a, um, uh, a regional exercise at the Port Authority, uh, emergency operations center. And I believe that, Rob, tragically, some people that were at the exercise were lost on 9-11 because they were regional public safety leaders. So I, I need to say that and and, and uh, out of respect. Sure. But I also am confident that the work that we all did, the collective we, meaning the Port Authority leadership, uh, the cities of Newark and, and New York and the state of New York and New Jersey, and the work that we did together helped us work together better and get through the actual attacks yeah. because... The, the room we were in for the exercise became the EOC for the long term yep. for the for the Port Authority. The second is a uh, we were doing a full scale exercise. Uh, I was I was doing contract work and we were on contract with the uh, uh, Massachusetts Southeast Regional Homeland Security Authority, I believe it was called. Yep. And that was, uh, yeah, Dedham, Milton, south of Boston, all the way down to New Bedford. Uh, Great project. We met some great people. And we did a bunch of exercises under Homeland Security Grant. The biggest one we did was a rail exercise uh, for the... uh, MBTA, I believe it's, yep. it's called, right? Yep. You're up yep. in New yep. England. So the, yep. the MB, we did a major rail exercise, uh, collision, fire, derailment, the whole the whole package. Mm-hmm. Uh, a week later, there's a major derailment of a passenger train in the, in the location we exercised. Wow. Got a call from the I didn't. Our project manager got a call from the acting fire chief a few days after the incident thanking him for the work that we did she felt 
she felt that the work that we did in bringing the people together and familiarizing them with unified command and how because you're from New England they're, they're not huge cities so right. every small city has a rescue they have their own engines oh. and trucks and 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 you know police cars so everybody came together effectively and that's very gratifying yeah, for sure, for sure. Okay, so the 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 ugly. This is classic. <laughs> this is absolutely classic, and I can look upon it with a smile now because uh, of the uh, of the outcome. Um, we had a fairly sizable team doing emergency planning, crisis management development, program development, business continuity development for a global organization. It uh, doesn't matter. <laughs> doesn't matter who. They were a global organization headquartered in an East Coast city. This organization had a, a data center in a suburban area of this East Coast city. This data center also, they had a primary emergency operations center and the data center within the structure also had an alternate emergency operations center. So I'm I'm facilitating, we're facilitating a global exercise and I, uh, we have a team, uh, in, in, at the downtown location and in this alternate location. And I have the, the bulk of the C-suite with me from the CEO to the VP of this and the yep. chief of that. And, uh, you know, almost like you see on, uh, in the movies, everybody's phone rings at once except mine the cell phones at the time they're still using peepers this is this is post 9 11 so to put a time frame on yeah, it yeah. um and they'll get up and leave and uh and i'm like oh, we we have a security threat and they all get up and leave <laughs> and now i'm sitting in the room all by myself and my, now my, the security my, threat is in the location or what? No, no 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 the security threat is was at the downtown location okay so it's cleared get the all clear yeah and they come in and they sit and and they sit back down and um i asked what happened they told me about what happened and how they cleared <laughs> and, and they were very proud of themselves i'm like you know what you guys blew it you absolutely blew it you are a sitting crisis management team right here why are you f and they all had phones in front of them what uh, and cell phones right why you felt the need to get up and leave the room because that's just what they do right people right. fall back on what they do most right. and nobody disagreed with me everybody was <laughs> like yeah we are we're right here in the room i said we could have communicated with 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 the home office we right. could have if necessary set up a, a a unified strategy how right. are we going to respond to it because they were evacuating the campus and you right. know, all that stuff yeah, yeah. think yeah. about the post 9 11 days right yeah, yeah, yeah. all these threats and stuff yeah. and uh it, it it was fascinating to see from a human behavior perspective right. yeah. frustrating from a crisis management perspective <laughs> yeah and, i'm sure and gratifying that that lesson was learned because right. nobody disagreed, and we we after actioned it right there and said, yeah, "Everything we've been planning, right. <laughs> we've been sitting in the room with these people for months, literally months, right. developing the, the this program." So. Yeah, that's a good event. Yeah, 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 yeah. Good ones. Well, I love the stories. We love them. You know, all listeners love these uh, these types of stories, and we always like to end on exercises. So we appreciate you sharing. 
Um, well, anyway, I, that's it to wrap up. I just want to say a big thank you, Steve. I appreciate um, you know you coming along to the show here today. Um, any final comments for our listeners? And then if they want to contact you, how can they reach out? I'd love to collaborate. Um, uh, I love to network. It's a big part of what we do. Yep. Rob, you and I have been connected uh, for years now, and, yep. and it's great that we get to see each other, and I look forward to working with you more. The um, LinkedIn is a fantastic place for networking. Yep. We have developed a huge collective of like-minded emergency managers and crisis managers. Um, I have a fairly sizable amount of followers and connections. Uh, so find me on LinkedIn is a great way to find me. Uh, the company uh, website is kurgroup.com, uh, K-U-H-R-G-R-O-U-P.com. Uh, you can get me that way as well. Great. Appreciate that. And we'll add those into the show notes um, below so folks can uh, click on those links and find you on LinkedIn as well as your website. So great. Well, again, thank you for your time today, Steve. We really appreciate it. We look forward to working with you uh, sometime in the future and enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you, Rob. Have a good one. Yeah, take care.